0: God, I hope this works. My name is Ivan Lozardi. I'm sending this message to the year 2020 on the last night of election week in the year 2050. We're watching the returns come in as the last ballots are counted in some hotly contested races, but we're celebrating. Once again, every single American over the age of 16 in 52 states has cast their ballot and turned out the vote. If this works and you're hearing me, that means it works. And this is truly an unhistoric night.
1: Hi, my name is Johan Kalilian. As an executive coach, I time travel with people. I get to help people create their future, from their future. One of the guiding principles that we use as coaches is how future-based language transforms the way the world occurs to us. In other words, the way you speak about tomorrow shifts the way you look at the world today. It also shifts how you interact with that world. Join me as we write a letter from the future with love. I was 18 years old, I wrote in my vote for President of the United States. But before I tell you who I voted for, can you guess why I wrote in my vote? I'm going to give you a little bit of time. Go ahead and marinate on it. Yeah, I think maybe some of you might have guessed the reason why. It's probably something that you've heard time and time again from maybe family or friends. Right? Like this idea that I I didn't want to choose between the lesser of two evils. Have you ever felt that way? Right? You see two options. One blue, one red. One liberal, one conservative. One Democrat, one Republican. And yet none of the choices align with your values. Right? You take this long, sobering look at two candidates that stand before you. And you just feel wrong about supporting either one of them. I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about? And that's why my first presidential vote in the history of my life was written in. And you guys want to know who who I voted for? (laughs) I voted for the one and only Batman. That's right. The Dark Knight. The Cape Crusader. And the fact that he wasn't a real person, I mean it didn't matter to me because presidential candidates, I mean they weren't real to me either. They were carefully crafted characters built to garner a vote from the American public. And voting for Batman was my form of protest. It was the decision of an angry teenager. I mean I was so angry with our two-party system. I was I was just straight up frustrated with the way politicians said one thing and did another. It infuriated me when presidential candidates or presidents who cared more about corporations over the needs of everyday, regular people like you and me. Bonnie Stable, professor of public policy at George Mason University, has something to say about anger rolling into our vote. She says this if you can get people to feel angry, that's a very useful political tool especially if the balance is thrown to the side of going with this guttural feeling rather than your rational thoughts. So let me get back to Batman. Now, he was the only person I wanted to see in the White House at the time. That was the year that Bill Clinton won his second term as president of the United States. And since then, the only person I have been proud to vote for was Barack Obama. My voting history has been a consistent form of protest. Like, I've never felt like my vote ever really counted. So I voted for third-party candidates. I voted for Barack, right? That was my one proud moment as a voter. And I voted for Batman. Back in 2016, I voted for a third-party candidate again, and I did that for three reasons. One, I didn't want to vote for the lesser of two evils. Two, I live in California and it always swings blue. Three, I was absolutely certain Hillary Clinton was going to win. And uh, as we all know, I ended up being wrong. I ended up being very, very wrong about that third choice, right? Like, and it stung big time. I will not be taking the same stance this election. I will be voting for one of the actual candidates. And I will be doing that because I firmly believe this election is one of the most important elections of our lifetime. The question becomes, what are we going to do to actually get it there? because that's the key and actually you know Matteo you and I were talking about the other day for me the heart and soul of why I wanted to do this podcast is I was like what would it look like to actually coach culture like mm. I would love to coach culture I would love to coach society and what I do with clients the first thing that I do is say hey let's figure out what's your vision what results do you want to create and then we figure out how to get there what do they need to be committed to what's getting in their way so that we can actually experience the results that my specific client wants. Now, this is the interesting thing, especially living in America, is you have so many different people who want different things. So how in the world, as a collective, do we get together and create a vision of America that compels all of us, right? Like that benefits all of us. Because I think that's been part of the complaint in the world that we live in is, well, this, this country is only for the elites. And, you know, this country uh, is only for white folks. And this co- <laughs> and so now it's like we're saying, all right, well, how do we actually create a, a country that is for everyone? It's for people who have money, people who don't have money, people who are uh, white, people who are of color, people who are, you know, not just Christian, but also Muslim, Hindu, Sikh. I mean, you name it, every faith background is how do we create a a world, a government right now, a government, country, a world where everyone belongs? Everyone has a a voice and everyone matters. I think all of us can get on board of that, right? Mm. I think you don't don't want to get on board. board Yeah, for sure, for sure. (laughs) For sure, hit me with that, yeah.
2: Can can I push back on that? Because that is such a, I mean, the way that you talked about that, uh, young man, was so seductive. I like almost wanted to buy into this vision and dream. On the other hand, I'm also coming from an alt, alternative universe, parallel universe, in which all of those beautiful things that you just said have a ring of truth to them. On the other hand, the bare bone facts are that there is no reason to keep the United States as it currently exists. And in terms of um, thinking about executive coaching and how that that shows up in terms of coaching culture and this podcast and all that stuff, I mean, that is kind of the work that I do as an activist And an organizer is to get people to imagine things that they never could imagine before. And that includes like our nation state. Given that nation states are a recent historical invention, I mean, a couple hundred years old, nation states haven't always been a thing. Societies have have organized themselves historically in very different ways. Uh, When you look at the size of the United States, the way that it is, it seems crazy that that it all congeals together. But of course, the only way that it all congeals together is through violence and force. That's how we have the state of California, the state of Arizona, each individual states were never part of the 13 colonies. They were only become part of the United States by virtue of the fact of so much violence and destruction and theft of land theft. So in the future, I, I can absolutely tell you that we have acted on an image of what a nation state could be, and it looks nothing like what the United States is now. In other words, there aren't 50 states, there aren't 48 contiguous states plus Hawaii and plus Alaska. There is no more United States in the parallel universe that I live in. That's not to say that There aren't people living in what we would understand as the borders of the United States now, but it looks completely different. Societies are organized at a much smaller, much more local level. There's no idea to think that the people who think of things in California are the same kind of people who think the same kind of things that live in South Carolina. That's been a a political fiction that we've held on to for for too
1: long. Well, I haven't. I'm still I still haven't heard you really disagree because I think because I feel like you're you're waxing eloquent (laughs) because because here's the thing, because because part of it is it's this this conversation that we're having. Part of it is, look, we live in a world where everybody wants something Mm -hmm. because you want something right now in the conversation. You want to communicate an idea. Mm -hmm. Part of what I hear you saying is the people who have been able to get what they want historically Mm -hmm. Have been the people who get that by force
2: absolutely
1: great it's still the, the core of what we're saying is how do we live in a world where is it possible where everybody gets what they want absolutely is that possible absolutely so absolutely. so so this is so and I know that part of the notion of democracy and voting is rooted in that it's like can we all cast a vote, make a decision, choose, show up to play so that People get what they want. Now, Now I know that just from having friends and all of us trying to do something as simple as, hey, where do we want to go eat tonight? <laughs> what movie do we want to go see? It is very hard. Even when you Netflix. have friends who, yeah, what do you want to watch on Netflix? It's very hard to get us to land on the same page. Mm. It's very, like, when but that's because that's what we're casting our vote for, right? Mm. What, like, where do we want to eat? There's a vote. Where do we want to go see a movie? There's a vote. And, and how do we as a people, but I, but I think here's the thing is, so maybe part of it is saying, look, we may not all agree all the time because that may be an impossibility. I, and I don't know, maybe there's a limiting thought there, even as I talk, you know, coach speak, is that, is it possible for us to get all on the same page? If that's something that just because of the nature of humans, is it possible to land on the same page even when we don't agree? Is it possible to continue to show up to fight for the world that we want, even when we don't agree. I think that's part of the travesty of right now is that it's like we tap out when we don't get our way, right? It's like we go with hang out with a friend. Hey, you want to go see this movie? There's 10 of us. Six of us want to go see it and four don't. And then, you know, maybe the four are like, forget it, I'm out. Which they have the right to do, right? Sure. Or the four can say, you know what? Yeah, we'll go with you guys because we want to be a part of the community. We want to hang out with our friends. And then they say... Next, Next time, time, can we go see the movie that we want? Mm-hmm. And then the group says, heck yeah, let's do that. And I think that to me, that's the part of whether it be America that I, I think when I hear about the ideas of the American government country dream, I'm like, that's the, the world that I want to be a part mm-hmm. of. Where we understand that we're not always going to get our way, but we know how to show up to play even when we don't. And then we also attempt to navigate and push for the thing that we want in the midst of, I think, the uncertainty and the differences. Ivan, I know that you were going to jump in and say something, so I wanted to give you some space there too. So one of the things that that I
3: heard Dr. Sandoval talking about that was really interesting was this notion that we have organized and become a country through force and through violence. And I certainly think that that's true. I think if you look just a step past that, um, we've uh, leveraged and and pointed that force and that violence through story. Um, I think the stories that we tell about, or the stories that were told in the past about the settlers needing to go out west because it was their divine, you know, purpose and mission to do so, was a way that 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 violence and force was was directed. What we've done. Um, what I'm so grateful to see now is that we've upgraded our stories. And the stories that we tell to direct our energy and resources are stories that uplift people, stories that help those, stories that, uh, that serve the needs of those who have needs. And I think that that's something really beautiful and hopeful that, that we learned that, you know, we, we, we stopped creating a circle that was a border for others, but we invited people within. We stopped having people be outside of that circle as uh, I'm, I'm butchering a father, Greg Boyle quote, but we imagined the circle of compassion and imagined no one outside of it. And so in, in that way, I say all this as it relates to voting because we saw how that was, you know, that's one of the smallest ways that our, that our timeline, that our parallel universe, I think is better in 2050 than it was in 2020 that we saw that our energy and our attention to be directed toward peace and kindness as opposed to scarcity, which I think is where a lot of these other stories were rooted in.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think, cause I, I, I really would, I, I wish I could visit your world, uh, Mateo. Cause, oh, it's dope. cause like,
2: I wish you, you guys... could come through.
1: Yeah. No, and I, I'm definitely going to work on my time travel stuff. Uh, <laughs> Get your time travel. But in travel the meantime, I just right. I keep having you guys come over to to our time because I I don't I haven't figured out the technology and you guys seem to not want to give Dude, away. Dude, 2020
2: the is of... a groovy year to keep back on. <laughs> it,
1: it is fascinating, actually. It's it's been a it's been a transforming year for me, hmm. and I haven't said this on the podcast yet, but I met my wife to be. Her name is Lena Martinez, and we're actually going to get married in a, in a couple months. And I'm about to have my first child. Her name is Isla, and she's going to be born in March. And that's part of why I want to have even these really, really, for me, uh, culture transforming conversations. Because it's like now, I, now there's like more skin in the game for me. It's like I have a little one who's going to be <laughs> around when I'm gone.
2: You literally have more skin in the game.
1: Like I literally have
2: eight or nine skin. pounds worth of more skin in the game. right.
1: Double
3: congratulations, you know? by the way.
1: Congratulations yeah, I on your
3: yeah. on your impending nuptials,
1: impending nuptials, and yeah. on uh, the impending birth of your daughter. Congratulations. Yeah. And I, and and so for me, as I jump in, it's like I'm like Mateo. I I think you live in a world where there is some semblance of a vote, right? So we could talk about what does that vote mean, like government this, but there's a, even I, I've heard you talk about this a lot. It's if you're going to shrink things, there's votes in a community. People in the community need their voice to matter.
2: No, actually, I love that you brought that up because part of the thing is is that we've attached this notion of our voice mattering to this other concept of a vote, right? As if these two things need to work together, when in fact, they don't. You can actually have your voice heard without casting a ballot in the way that we would understand voting. Because of course, it's important as part of any community to have a say in that community. Well, why not
1: expand the definition of vote then? Because to me, that is... So even if, you know, because like we said, there's a simplistic version of vote. Hey, what's your vote? What do you want to eat tonight? What's your vote, right? It's, It's just saying you have an opinion. You have a perspective. You have something to say about it. What's your vote, right? What direction would you like us to move in? As opposed to, I think, right, to me, the limiting idea of like, well, cast your ballot and, you know, write, write the, is Democrat, Republican. Sure.
2: To me, underlying all of that is how do you make decisions? How right. as a community do you make decisions? In other words, right. so there are, there are multiple ways to think about how, how does a community get together to make decisions? One way that we're obviously talking about now is through voting, right? Where you, on a, on a given day, a special day, you go and cast your ballot or you mail it in, et cetera, and you say, okay, This is how it's very impersonal, right? You can do it from the confines of your home. You can mail it in or you could uh, go into the little ballot box at your local high school gymnasium and cast your ballot. So it's all a very impersonal affair, which you don't have to actually look at the other people in your community. uh, And
3: just FYI, that's not how we do that in my world. Oh, that's dope. Voting voting does not look that way where I come from.
2: Dope. So that, that's, but I would say that that's the more common way that we understand voting, uh, or w- I should say decision making, because that's what I was trying to talk about is that underneath voting is how do you make decisions as a community? Uh, so, one, one way in, in a representational democracy and a representative democracy, it's through voting, in which you are voting for somebody to represent you and your voice, right? So another way of making decisions is actually through an assembly procedure, which is uh, something that a lot of communities historically all over the globe have engaged in, uh, where the community gets together on a given day to make decisions as a community in that time and space right there to come to some decision in terms of how they're going to proceed on whatever it is that they're deciding. How does
3: that work on a on a sort of what we would know as a national level?
2: Well, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't necessarily in the parallel universe I'm coming from. We're not making decisions in California for people who live in South Carolina. There are no more na- there's no nation state known as the United States.
1: It's yeah. it's a
2: very different organized community.
1: Yeah, that's what it, what I've heard him say is like it's basically it's by deconstructing what we know as America, creating smaller communities, states, cities. I mean. You know, I feel like we could expand that. And it's a great conversation. I'm super curious what that looks like in your world. Cause but for the sake of the show, I feel like, right, that's a that's a bigger conversation to be like, what would that look like? It, it sounds, you know, I think a lot of times when you hear that people, that
3: there is no vote or that you can't vote or that voting doesn't happen, it's easy to go to, you know, the evil empire. It's easy to go to some dictatorial sort of um, menacing place. And yeah, there are communities that, you know, millennia ago were moving through a process that didn't look like this. Mm-hmm. I wonder how in your world, because I'm assuming you have time travel and you, have, you, you can move through dimensions. So technology yeah, right. has happened. You know, I'm, I, I'm guessing you probably have some form of currency. You probably have some form of an economy and how that works. So I'm curious how you guys organize your you know your people you organize into communities how big those communities reach when uh, smaller voices might be able might be lost as those groups get bigger
2: that's a great question i think that that's outside the scope of this comp of this conversation but in terms of like those smaller voices this is why that consensus model of decision making becomes so important because generally uh, even in this scenario that you presented, Johan, about like, how do we decide on the Netflix movie when we have 13 people and eight people want this movie and five people want that, right? And so you have to go with the majority. Why? Why do you have to go with what the majority says? Why can't you just sit there and decide with those 13 people until you all collectively come to some kind of agreement without the eight people winning and then determining the terms.
1: Because then you ain't watching a movie that night. But this, then is you ain't watching a movie this is the thing.
2: This is also, night, but here, let me let me just interject very quickly. The thing also that exists in terms of a consensus decision-making process is the suspension of that a decision has to be determined in this amount of time, right? In the world 2020, we seem to want decisions to be made quickly. We don't want to spend time having to make decisions, even if decisions are really, really important that we have things that are on our plate, that we have time, as opposed to saying, okay, I am willing to take however much time it's going to take for us to collectively come together and make this decision because it's worth it to me and it's worth it to my community and I'm showing up for my community and I will stay here all night.
1: I love that. Similar to the question of who would be fit to lead our nation, I have another question for you. And this one is of imminent significance. What? What would happen if no one voted? I'm talking about zero people showed up. Like, what if on election day, everyone in America simply decided they would much rather stay home, order dinner delivered, crack open a a bottle of wine, and binge the latest rip from the headlines murder doc series on Netflix? Like, what if we ignored that the election was happening? What would happen then? Well, that's not too far from what happened in the last election. You see, because 43% of eligible voters, nearly 100 million people, 100 million people did not vote in the general election. Heck, if you're listening and we're over the age of 18 in 2016, chances are nearly 50-50 that you didn't vote in the general election. And maybe you felt like your choices were limited, right? Like that's how I felt historically too. You kept saying to yourself, I don't want to have to choose between the lesser of two evils, right? It's, that, it's that, that opinion, that perspective that we've heard so many different times, right? I've believed it myself, as you heard earlier. And maybe like me, you were sick and tired of politicians who make grand promises, but in the end, only look out for themselves. Maybe you had to go to work. I mean, maybe you couldn't get somebody to take care of your kid. Maybe you didn't have your ID and, and your state requires it. Maybe you didn't have a way to get to the polling place. Whatever the reason, the election was happening. And for the people who skipped on voting, their beliefs shaped how they felt about their responsibility to vote. They believed their vote didn't matter. Have you ever felt that way? Well, this is the stance of despair. The stance of cynicism. And the result of despair and cynicism, well, in the 2016 election at least, was the Trump administration. I think what makes it more real for all for us three and for our you know my listeners, is, like, why is this important to me? Mm. Why does this matter to me personally as a human being? Because I think what's easy for us to do, especially when it comes to voting, is detach ourselves, become apathetic and say, yeah, doesn't matter. Whether that be the world that Ivan is talking about, which is like, hey, everybody votes. How do we get there? Some people would already tap out to be like, that's impossible.
2: Mm.
1: Right. Some people would tap out of your world, Mateo, to be like, oh, well, this guy, he's just on, he's just pessimistic. And (laughs) but even if it is, hey, you have a vision, you have a dream of a world to say, look, I think we should we should. Chop down what we think America is, and start to interact with smaller communities. But the question still becomes: Right? Is like, well, how in the world do we get there? Now, you have that value for a specific reason, mm. and and Ivan has his value for a specific reason. So I wanna I wanna ask that question for both of you guys: Is like, why is this idea of voting so crucial for you as a human being? Like, why does it matter to you? And then open your hearts a little bit. So that you know the audience can also realize why would this be important for them
3: i mean i have I have an idea i'm not I'm not sure, so it's all shitty for a strap
2: that's okay he has um, something personal that's really personal you know the the
3: first the first election that I remember um having significance to me um wasn't actually a presidential election um, it was i I'm going to get the years kind of wrong. Um, So excuse me for that, because it's been a while. But in California, we have a proposition process. So ideas get put on the ballot, propositions get put on the ballot. Maybe we're raising taxes for a park, and maybe we're creating some new government institution. And I can't quite remember the year, but it was when I was in high school. Prop 22 was proposed by a senator, a state senator out of Palmdale which is where I went to high school, where I graduated from high school. And I remember seeing these signs for Prop 22 everywhere in my city. What's Prop 22? So Prop 22... um, Just for the sake of, I feel like you threw that
1: out there not too many people may know. Well, I was going to get there. I was building to it. Yeah, I think we may need to know that first, yeah. So Prop 22 was a precursor
3: to what Prop 8 would become in California. Prop 22 was a state law that defined marriage as only between one man and one woman. Prop 22 passed and it passed easily. And several years later, Gavin Newsom as the mayor of San Francisco, because this was only a law, now you can you can, and in certain instances choose not to uphold a law the same way that a police officer can choose not to give you a speeding ticket. So Gavin Newsom decided he wouldn't uphold this law anymore. And so Prop 22 went away for a short period of time. And suddenly, couples, gay couples in California could marry. This is important to me because I'm I'm a gay person. And I was a young gay person at that time. Watching the people around me, watching my fellow Californians, watching people in my own family vote against my ability to legally tie myself to another person, to marry, to experience the joys and the frustrations and the, the love and commitment, that sort of value that we've given to marriage that I wholeheartedly subscribe to. I I want to be in a, in a committed, loving relationship. And the people that I cared about said, no, you're, you're actually not good enough for this thing. You don't get to have this thing because who you are is fundamentally less than who we are. And so, so, so yeah. So for, for a long time in California, gay couples couldn't marry. And I was too young maybe to think about marriage at that time, but I knew that it meant something. And I knew that, that it meant something that the people in my life thought that I wasn't worthy of this thing. And so it wasn't when Barack Obama got elected in 2008.
2: No. Yes, that was
3: 2008. <laughs> yes, in 2008. Uh, <laughs>
1: I could see you're a in historian.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what? The, the numbers are all They're not when popping When Barack head, so. Obama got elected in the other day.
3: <laughs> I think it was in last the week. Other day. It was last week. Basically, most, most of the time, just after high school, just after even the first opportunity that I, that I was able to vote, marriage wasn't a thing that was on the table. Marriage wasn't a thing that I ever thought I would get to have. Marriage equality was not something that I truly expected to ever see in my lifetime. I thought that it would come for for some other people, but not me. Mm. And I was okay with that, I guess. And then then Prop 8 was put on the ballot. And Prop 8 was a state constitutional amendment to the state of California that was almost verbatim the the text of Prop 22. Marriage is defined as a union between one man and one woman. Accept that as a state constitutional amendment. You don't have the option of not upholding it. You don't have the option of ignoring. It. And you know it was it was heartbreaking and yet also so beautiful to in the same night that we elected our, this nation's first black president, and to to have casted a vote for that president, to once again see the people of my state people in my community, people who I knew, people who were my friends. You know, I, I lost a few friendships because they voted yes on Prop 8 and they voted to take away a right that we had already, that we already had. You know, Californians at that time, because of those actions in San Francisco, were for a brief period of time able to marry gay Californians or, or LGBTQ Californians, were able to marry the, people, the person they loved. For a brief time and, you know, our, our neighbors decided once again, we are not worthy of that. And I think in, in almost a, uh, an ironic sort of way, that's why voting is so important because there were, there were plenty of people who felt that I'm a whole worthy complete person who, who is worthy of, ha- of having a relationship, who's worthy of being loved, who's worthy of, of experiencing marriage, of experiencing the things that so many people get to experience and they take it for granted. Uh, and there were people who would have wanted that for me but chose not to vote because they didn't think it mattered. And here it is. It mattered. Like might not have mattered to them but it mattered It mattered to me and to millions of other gay Californians and pure Californians.
2: No, that was really good. I, I really appreciated hearing that story from life. That was like, a that was a great little moment. Thank you for sharing that What was the question again? Can you reframe it for me? You,
1: you know what, man? It's just
2: something like, it, I, well, I remember it was something yeah. along the lines of how is this personal? And I think...
1: Well, uh, it is. It's okay, like, so, why is this important to you? This, and then okay. and basically, yeah, exactly. Why, why is, is voting important to you? Uh, you know, fill us in on... And how personal I've come to my story. understandings
2: of voting. I've got a very personal story. <laughs> a very, very personal story. You know, I don't think that, so in the 2000, I think the 2000 election, because and I'm just going to concentrate not even on like propositions. And that's why I love why I even took it directly to like propositions that you can vote on at the state level. That's an important conversation for me. I mean, it, it's in terms of like electoral leaders. And so my first election would have been 2000, but I didn't participate in that election just because I was dumb and stupid. The only thing I cared about at that time in my life was like basketball, poetry, theater, modern dance. Like I was in the art world and that's all I could focus on. I really wasn't really paying much attention to what was happening in 2000. So I didn't participate, which is to say I didn't vote. 2004 was the first time that I did participate in voting for John Kerry. I was living in New York. And I think at that time, the war in Iraq was, like, heavy. We had seen torture uh, in terms of the war on terror in Iraq. The idea that we were stripping men, women, young boys, naked, torturing them, inserting things into their body, like, literally, the U.S. military torturing people abroad, creating an entire prison of torture in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. All of these things were resonant in my mind. It's like, how is this my country? How is my country actually doing this stuff? This makes no sense to me. This makes no sense to me. How how can we ever elect a leader who would allow these things to happen? There's no way I'm gonna vote for George Bush. I don't even need to listen to anything that guy says. The very fact that the war is being perpetrated in the way that it's being perpetrated, that there's war at all. I don't even care. I'm just gonna vote for this other dude because even though I wasn't savvy enough at the time to understand that John Kerry really Fundamentally, wasn't a whole lot different in terms of his political acumen and political ideology, but cast that vote nonetheless and then saw the war spiral out of control, saw a number of things in our country. At that time, I was very involved in the anti-war effort as as an activist in New York and an artist in New York. And then 2007 happened. And this young, Black, man from Chicago, Illinois, stepped into the fray and said, yo, I got vision. I got vision, folks. I got vision. And you think that shit can't change. Watch me change. You think that shit can't change. Watch me change this. And for some reason, at that time, I was in such a pessimistic place watching what George W. Bush was doing to our country and doing with our country. But I was like, yo, man, this, this fool is on something. And I was very liberal at the time. I I didn't necessarily identify as a Democrat per se, but I think in terms of my my politics, I was very liberal oriented. And I was so invested in this young man named Barack Obama that I decided to campaign for him. And this was when, this would have been in 2007, I was living in Los Angeles. But I was driving, Los Angeles was like, didn't matter. But in that primary season in 2007, the state of Nevada was very in the air in terms of, are they going to vote for Hillary Clinton or are they going to vote for Obama? This is the Democratic primary. So I went, I was driving to Nevada like every weekend to knock on doors all over Las Vegas to help ensure that this guy was going to become the Democratic presidential nominee. And then, of course, he became that. And I continued to campaign for him, thinking like, as soon as this guy takes office, man, watch, this this is going to change. It's going to really change. Like, I can actually believe that my voice is going to help elect somebody who's going to make change happen. And then he won in 2008, and took office in the winter of 2009. I remember watching that inauguration; it was very cold in DC. And I watched the first year of his president, his presidential run, and was just disappointed from the jump. Was disappointed from the jump, and I was so heartbroken by what I saw. This president, who I campaigned for, not just voted campaign for, use my gas money to drive somewhere, to tell people to vote for this fool. I had to crash on people's couches all over Nevada just so I could help get his vote out because I convinced other people that this guy could be trusted, that this guy was going to make real change. Instead, what I saw was a further decimation of our country on a number of levels. The first thing I saw was him deporting more people than George W. Bush did. That hurt me as somebody who's a self-identified Chicano to see a president who I helped elect immediately discard Latinos and start sending them back to Mexico, to Guatemala, Central America, South America, et cetera, at a rapid rate, at a rate that outdid, outpaced George W. Bush. At the time, I'm sure you both remember, we were in the midst of the Great Recession, the Wall Street meltdown, Wall Street created meltdown, and Barack Obama had a decision. He could either bail out everyday people who were hurting, who had just lost their jobs, just lost their homes, etc., who were in a real tough spot. He could choose to bail them out, or he could choose to bail out billionaires, Wall Street bankers, etc., etc. And I watched him bail out Wall Street, and the the uber-elite, uber-rich, and didn't really give much to those everyday people. I watched him expand the war on terror so that whereas before we were just in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of a sudden now we're in Yemen, we're in Somalia, we're in Pakistan, we're all over the globe expanding the war. This is the person that I helped elect. And then it became obvious to me that like, dude, politicians are politicians. It doesn't matter what stripe they're on. They all are corporate elitists who are going to make decisions along those lines. So in 2011, I joined the Occupy movement in Los Angeles and started to do a lot of activist work, thinking like, okay, if we can build an activist core strong enough, we, could, we can build a social movement. Democrats love to say, hey, if you just build a social movement and encourage us to act accordingly, we will act according to the people and the will of the people. Just build a social movement strong enough. So we did, but the Occupy movement, We said, hey, let's bail out everyday people instead of bailing out the banks. Instead of listening to the Occupy Movement what they had to say, I watched Obama and Biden and Hillary Clinton and everybody who was part of that administration literally use the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security to come in all over the nation and every urban city and break up the Occupy Movement, jailing those people, beating those people, tasing those people, shooting those people, tear gassing those people. That was Democrats doing that. That was Democrats doing that. It was somebody who I helped put into office. And so when 2012 came, that next election cycle, I I couldn't in good conscience vote for a party that was interested in expanding the war, who was interested in upholding Wall Street, who was interested in deporting children, and at that time, putting children in dog kennels. People like to think that this started with Trump. This started with Obama putting little brown children in dog kennels, dog, dog kennels. And to me in 2012, I was like, there's no way. Given this record, given that's what this fool is doing, how can I in good conscience say that's who I'm going to vote for? How can I in good conscience say that's where I want to cast my ballot because I want more of that? But of course, I'm not going to vote for Mitt Romney because who the hell was Mitt Romney? The fool was a joke. Yeah. But I was told again and again by everybody up and down my social media page and all over my activist groups, like, hey, you have to vote for Obama again. Like that's what you have to do. It's a, it's about the lesser of two evils. Right? We don't want Romney. Who cares what Obama's done? He's at least not Romney. And so you have to vote the lesser of two evils. And that to me made no sense whatsoever. Because in my mind, all I'm thinking is what I'm voting for is more kids in dog cages, more war more Wall Street bailouts, and just more of the same old, same old. And at that point, I realized that electoral politics was just a shuffling of faces, man, because really both, part, both the main parties, Republicans and Democrats, to me, in my, politi- this is my political analysis and experience, you were asking for my experience, and this is what I'm giving if I didn't pay as close attention to things and didn't feel as deeply as I did about things, didn't, wasn't hurt by the things that I saw, then maybe I'd be able to say, ah, who cares? I'll just vote for the Democrats anyway. But since then, I would say since 2012, I'm like, I can't ever get on board with the Democrats with regards to who they're dragging out because I see what they do. I've seen what they do when they're in power. It's the same things that the Republicans do. They may flip it a little bit. They may, they may massage it a little bit in their messaging. But ultimately, they're still going to be on the side of the wealthy, the elite, Wall Street. They're still going to expand war. They're still going to look for high military budgets. They're still going to deport kids. They're still going to cage kids. They're still going to do all the things that Republicans have been doing, right? So in my mind, it's like, I I can't get on board with that anymore. And that includes in the 2020 election. And I know that the same, the same, the same narrative gets dragged out in 2012, 2016, 2020, lesser evil. Got to vote for this person because it's the lesser evil. But in my experience, evil is evil and I'm not on board with voting for evil. So in my personal experience, like if I'm re- relating this personally, that's what it means to me. It's, it's that there really is no option that, or, or rather I should say that there are a multitude of options, but we live in this box that we perceive as there's only two options, right? It's that limited belief that there are only two options. You could either vote for A or you could vote for B. But don't pay attention to any of this stuff over here about, you know, other people who might be running. Certainly you can't vote for them because that destroys our lesser lesser evilism argument. So to me, all of that kind of plays a role in the way I think about voting. Sorry, that was a very, very long answer. I'm sure you didn't no, really need to know all of that narrative.
1: I know. I, I <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm really grateful for the story. And you know, for both of you guys, right? There's, and I think this is for all of us. We have stories, we have experiences, we have things that happened, and that usually shapes how we show up for the game. And, and if voting is a part of right now the game in America, right, like we're, we're either going to show up to play or we're going to show up and not, or we're not going to show up to play. I want to start this section with the, the words of the late John Lewis. Once upon a time, he said, if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't work so hard to take it. Elections are the first step in a democracy. Before you start to talk about freedom of speech or freedom of religion, you have to create, by election, a government that will guarantee and protect those inalienable rights. In other words, you don't bake a cake by making the frosting first. Now, let's travel just a little bit further back in time. Let's travel back to 1963. That's nearly 60 years ago for you listening in, in 2020. Then, like now, the United States was engaged in a conversation about race and justice. Then, like now, a movement was swelling for Black people's rights to an education, fair housing, equal treatment under the law, freedom from discrimination, and yes, even voting. Voting is where democracy starts. It is the most important of the rights guaranteed to a citizen of a democracy. It is the basis of a democracy. It is the egg and the chicken. And when we come together in an election to choose our representatives, we affirm the notion that we govern ourselves by free choice. We move towards that more perfect union. And I mean, guys... When we think about what's happening right now, like I, I I saw the the vice presidential debates the other day, and a fly stole the show. I mean, that's how bad it's gotten. We are more interested in a fly on the vice president's head than in what he has to say. And you can look at that and say, "Well, that's why I don't vote," or you can look at that and say, "That's why I choose to vote." And I want to share this because I I, I read it online, and I think it's the perfect metaphor for what we're talking about today. Voting isn't marriage. It's public transport. You're not waiting for the one who's absolutely perfect. You're getting the bus. And if there isn't one to your destination, you don't not travel. You take the one going closest. My brothers and sisters, as you're listening to this today, I want you to vote like your life depends on it. And again, I'll close with the words of the late John Lewis. And he said, I've said this before and I will say it again. The vote is precious. It is almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent tool we have in a democracy.
0: Each of us votes every day. It's what we do as part of a community. Most of the time, ballots are cast over something simple like what we'll watch on Netflix, what we'll eat for dinner, where we'll go on vacation. But every four years in the United States, ballots are cast over something a little more important, something with lasting consequences. We come together to create our democracy. We elect the person meant to represent the United States at home and abroad. You are each of you living in an extraordinary time. Time of strife, time of plague, time of fear, sure. But it's also a time of great hope. You're each of you living in an extraordinary time where you're called to make a decision. Will you fall into despair? Or will you once again look upon your better angels? Now, it's not a perfect process. Nothing is. Nothing can be. Like the votes over Netflix, sometimes you end up binging a show about murderous tiger breeders asking yourself, How the f*** did we get here? Who are all these insane people he surrounds himself with? He must have some serious mental illness that makes him unfit to breed tigers. No, it's not a perfect process. And it's not meant to be. It's meant to be a more perfect process. One that brings us closer to that more perfect union. It's how in the same night we can elect the first black president of the United States. And on the same ballot... Vote to take away the right to marriage to millions of our fellow LGBTQ citizens. One step forward, one step back. Not perfect, merely more perfect. Like a tributary river flowing down to the ocean, it is from this right to vote that all our other rights flow. On November 3rd, 2020, 30 years ago for me, you will begin an ocean swell of change that will never break. After this election, I promise you, nothing will be the same. And what once seemed impossible, looking back, will be recognized as inevitable. Every single American over the age of 16 in these 52 states has turned out to vote tonight. And it all started with you. How do I know this? I've traveled here from the future with love. <sighs>
1: the next episode of From the Future with Love, we'll be talking about the future of education. We'll speak with fellow coach and lifelong educator Joseph Thompson. He'll be joining us from a future where everyone has access to a high-quality education and going to school in this world that he's coming to us from, I've heard is actually fun. My friends, you won't want to miss it. From the Future with Love was written and performed by yours truly, Johan Kalilian, produced by Rithu Jagannath. And Matthew Jones, fact checked by Rithu Jagannath, editing, mix, and tech production by Hammond Chamberlain, photography by Jess Kaler, and graphic design by Ivan Lisades. Special thanks to Mateo and Ivan for visiting us from 2050 and to everyone who is a part of our time traveler community. Thank you, and I'll see you in the future.